You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, today I want to talk about uh, inclusion and exclusion and that sort of thing and being in or out of a group. And uh, I was searching for an illustration of how to illustrate that. I was I came to mind... Uh, the ownership of a motorcycle, I've, as the sun came out last week for like three days and then disappeared again until September, presumably, I, uh, I uncovered my motorbike and decided to try and get it running again after a long, well, nearly a year of not using it. And I was just beginning to think about when I first had a motorbike. I got one probably about 2003, I think it was, and I needed to commute to work. And so I got it out of necessity, but it was very cool owning one. I have to say, I really felt great. You know, I had this giant piece of metal it was really cool and when you uh, learn to ride a bike you very quickly learn there's a kind of uh, an inner circle of kind of hints and uh, a kind of club that motorcyclists have that you're kind of in or out of and if you had a nice big bike like mine mine was a 750 as you rode along other motorcyclists would nod at you they would just tip their head like that and if you if you didn't know it you'd miss it but it was a kind of recognition of like you're in the motorcycle club but, and so you gradually learn to nod at other motorcyclists. And, uh, but you also learn there's a kind of pecking order. Like you never nod at people on a scooter. That's just silly. <laughs> uh, you don't really nod at people on Harley Davidsons, probably because they're too cool. They won't nod back. And then you kind of cover it up by saying, oh, they're just rubbish American machines. You know, they're not slick Japanese ones. Um, I mean, you're actually really jealous. Um, and it, when I went to London, people never nodded. Like you just, if you nodded at someone in London, it was like, you know, talking to someone next to you on the tube. It just wasn't done, you know. <laughs> and especially especially motorcycle carriers who are the, the coolest, kind of slickest, like they would never acknowledge anyone on the road, more likely to push you off your own bike to get you out of the way. And I, I felt very much part of this club until one day I, uh, my, my box where I kept my helmet was broken into and my lovely plain, I think it was a silver or black motorcycle helmet was stolen at about four o'clock in the afternoon. And there was, at that time, there was only one motorcycle shop in the whole of central London that sold helmets. And I had to go and buy a motorcycle helmet last minute. They had one in my size. Surprise, surprise. And, uh, and it was a Spider-Man helmet. It had a giant, <laughs> got a Spider-Man leaping out. I mean, some of you have, well, might, may remember this. It has a giant Spider-Man leaping out of it. And I had no choice. I couldn't get home without this helmet. So I had to buy a hundred quid for a helmet and, uh, all the cool was vanished in that moment. And I could never really justify spending another hundred pounds just to look cool again. So I've still got it to this day. <laughs> Fifteen years later. And, uh, so my cool went out the window. What a shame. Anyway, there's no pecking order in God's kingdom. And there's no gray area about who's in or out. That's, uh, the kind of theme for today. And really, I think the theme of what Luke is trying to illustrate for us. Luke, of course, is the author of the book of Acts. Back at the beginning of uh, the book of Acts, before his ascension, Jesus tells the apostles that they will be filled with the Holy Spirit and then the gospel will spread. He says these words to them. He says, you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, so you imagine this little expanding circle, in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1, verse 8. And one of the things Luke is doing, I think, you could almost say is the whole theme of the book of Acts is the fulfillment of that. It's actually happening, unfolding before them. Uh, we've seen it in Judea. We've read some of the stuff about um, the gospel going forth in Judea. Pentecost, of course, we had the preaching at the temple and 5,000 people getting saved. And we've, we've skipped over some of the bits. Sorry, the church in 
Jerusalem and Judea grew rapidly. Then there was a great persecution. At the beginning of chapter 8, you can read about how then that persecution led to the gospel being preached in Samaria. And loads of Samaritans started to become Christians. And Luke is going to show us in the rest of Acts 9, he's going to start with the conversion of the household of Cornelius. And then the, uh, he's going to talk about the, the conversion of Paul, who's going to be the apostles to the Gentiles. How the gospel is now going to go to the ends of the earth until it finds itself slap bang in the middle of Rome. And, and then we know the story from there. Luke probably didn't know where it was going to go from there, but it's a very cool story. In the middle of that expansion, we have this kind of window into one tiny little step in that, that Luke saw fit to kind of further illustrate his point, this conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And Luke didn't have to include him. You know, he's not one of the things that Jesus specifically mentioned from Judea, you know, uh, from Jerusalem, Judea. Uh, to Samaria, then to some random guy who's an Ethiopian, and then to the ends of the earth. He doesn't have to include him, but he does include him as part of this bigger illustration. And I think one of the reasons he includes him is because he's a really interesting guy. We can tell a lot about him from these uh, 14 or so verses. He is influential. He's the treasurer of Candace, or probably the Candace, which is an honorary title, we think, for the queen mother of Ethiopia at the time. He was wealthy. He has a chariot. Presumably he's not reading Isaiah and driving it himself at the time, so he has servants who are looking after him. He is in favor with his ruler because he's been granted a religious holiday and the use of government resources to go and worship at a temple in a country far away. That's not the kind of thing that most employees get as the perk of a job. So he's a, he's a favoured, wealthy foreigner. Uh, he's also not exactly a Gentile. So he doesn't quite fit into that, that description that Luke is looking for going to the ends of the earth. He's Ethiopian. He's a proselyte we're pretty sure, because he's going to worship in Jerusalem. That means he was a non-ethnic Jew. He was a convert to Judaism. He's been to worship at the temple. He's reading Isaiah in his free time. And he's freely chosen to take on the burden of the Jewish law. What else does that tell us about him? He is devout. He's taken time out of his job. He's taken his free time to worship at the temple. So he's a devout guy. And so for Luke, he's worth mentioning, among all the other things that are happening in the book of Acts, um, he's worth mentioning for the sake of completeness because he's a great individual illustration of the gospel expanding. But there's one other special thing that makes him worth mentioning, and that is his ceremonial status as a Jew. He is a eunuch. He's a eunuch, and that is very, very significant. So a eunuch would have served uh, in the court of somewhere like Candace in Ethiopia. Men were castrated so that they could never be a rival to the throne. They could never produce offspring. Being so close to the rulers, they would know the inner workings, they would know the secrets of a, of a kingdom, they would know all sorts of information that was a threat to the rulers. And to prevent them from having offspring or doing anything uh, in that regard, they were castrated. And what that meant for him as a Jewish convert was that there were severe limitations on his ability to experience life as a Jew. So in Deuteronomy 23.1, it says in the NOV, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. It's not particularly nice stuff for a Sunday morning, is it? But it's really important to make the point. The uh, the old King James Version had it like this. 
I mention it because it's mildly amusing, but there we go. He that is wounded in the stones or hath his privy member cut off shall not enter the congregation of the Lord. Well, as funny as that old-fashioned language is, it wasn't terribly funny for this guy because the way that was interpreted was that he was not allowed to worship in the temple at all. You'll be familiar, reasonably familiar with the construction of the temple. It was made up of several courts of increasing sanctity. On the outside, there was the court of the Gentiles where anybody could go and watch the worship. Then the next uh, layer of holiness was the court of the women who weren't quite fully admitted into the temple but were a bit better than the Gentiles. There you go, women. (laughs) Throw you a scrap. (laughs) Then inside that, there was the court of Israel where the men of Israel were, were able to worship, those who were not wounded in this way. And then there was, of course, there was the court of the priests, where only the priests were admitted. And then right in the center, there was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priests could go, and then only uh, now and then. So according to the interpretation of the law at the time, he could be a Jew, but he wasn't allowed. He wasn't even allowed in the court of the Gentiles. He wasn't allowed to enter the court. So here was a guy who was allowed to carry the burden of the law. He was allowed to seek to be right with God in whatever way Jewish people did at the time. He was He was devout, but he was excluded from the blessing of fellowship with God in the temple. He couldn't know that fullness. And this left him uncertain who could tell what his status was before God. Who could, what kind of blessing, what kind of uh, relationship with God could he have when God's presence was said to dwell in the temple and he wasn't even allowed to look upon the, 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 the inner courts of the temple? Was he really in or was he really out? Was he the in crowd or was he the out crowd? Was he really a Jew or wasn't he a Jew? So what persuades Luke to include this guy in the book of Acts? It's this status. Luke isn't just interested in showing us the spread of the gospel in a kind of mechanistic fashion. He wants to show us the implications of that spread. He wants to illustrate the point that Paul later makes in Colossians, very similarly in Ephesians 2. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. What that means is, not that there are no distinctions within the body of Christ, but when it comes to being a Christian, there are no limits on who can come to Jesus and who can experience the fullness of the blessing of coming to Jesus. There are no limits. And this guy, imagine reading this as a first century Jew with all your laws and everything. This guy illustrates that point perfectly. There are no limits. It's not just good Gentiles. It's not just nice Gentiles who look a bit Jewish or act or willing to take on the burden. It's people who were before absolutely excluded are included in the gospel. Everyone, every Christian, has access to the fullness of life that is in Christ Jesus. Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, women, eunuchs, and anyone else you can think of. So that's kind of Luke's big point, I suppose. And today I want to look at uh, three ways Luke demonstrates to us the fullness of this man's salvation. And I just want to bring out, as we do those three points, three-ish ways to apply those for us today. So we're going to look at Full understanding, we're going to look at unreserved welcome, and we're going to look at unlimited blessing. They're not like really memorable, but just to give you an idea of where we're going. So full understanding. Um, as the, uh, in our house, as the winter approaches and the nights get shorter, I know we don't want to think about that this time of year, but we, when it gets dark enough, uh, 
before the kids have gone to bed, it's really dark outside, and we play a game called Hide and Seek in the Dark, <laughs> which our kids love. So we close all the blinds, we turn all the lights in the house off, and we uh, one person has to stand in a place that's brightly lit so their eyes aren't adjusted to light, and everyone else just hides in the living room. You've, been, you've seen our living room, most of you. Uh, hides in the living room, just in really, really obvious places, but the lights are completely off. So this person walks in, whoever's you know the seeker, walks in out of the light, into a place that they're really familiar with, and it's really, really hard to find people. It's quite funny. You can hide in the most obvious places. Uh, just lie along the back of the sofa or stand on the windowsill or, <laughs> or lift up the whole sofa and just put it on top of you. <laughs> All the kind of creativity that comes with that. It's really easy to hide in obvious places. And familiar things, obvious things, become really unfamiliar. Well, for the Jewish people at the time, and Jesus, uh, Jesus' death, and his life, death, resurrection, and the early church, the Old Testament, which this eunuch was reading, was a bit like a game of hide-and-seek in the dark. It was full of things that should have been familiar. Uh, and in fact, they kind of knew it brilliantly. They knew it back to front. They knew the words, but they couldn't see some really obvious stuff. They couldn't see how it all fitted together. And the Old Testament, when you know Christ, is a bit like a game of hide-and-seek in the dark where somebody just switches all the lights on and you suddenly you look around and you think, oh, that's where everything is. <laughs> suddenly it makes absolute sense. And, and this is what's happening in this, this story with the Ethiopian, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. It's a great example of that. There's something about the way he's reading the book that prompts Philip to say, do you understand what you're reading? You know, no spaces and no vowels. I'm pretty sure that's why he was reading slowly. I think most of us would struggle with a scroll where there are no spaces between the words and no vowels. But anyway, he's reading slowly. He's reading out loud. And Philip says to him, do you understand what you're reading? And he, the guy's basically saying no. And um, so perhaps this guy's sounding out word by word. He's, you know, trying to figure it out to himself. But even if he could read it fluently, he wouldn't have known what it meant. You know, perhaps it was a text that he'd heard was read in the temple while he was waiting on the outside. Perhaps it was something he'd heard at a synagogue somewhere. It's worth mentioning, he must have been quite rich to own his own copy of Isaiah, or even a fragment of Isaiah. And even today, biblical scholars, those who are not Christians, struggle to say, who is Isaiah talking about? I, th- I told you a story before, an Old Testament professor of mine was going through Isaiah, showing how every little bit of it was historical. I had happened in the past. It wasn't prophecy at all. And he got to this bit and he said, and here we don't know who Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 53. And of course, a whole classroom of Christians were like, we know. <laughs> There's people still debating this today. Who is, who is this talking about? Asking exactly the same question. But here's Philip. He's seen He's been around for the ministry of Jesus. He's freshly converted. He's face to face with the apostles. This, this news is, is, um, is fresh in him. And, and here's this guy reading this passage and the gospel, it's just so obvious to him. It's like hide and seek in the dark. The lights are on. You know, suddenly the lights are on. It's so easy to him. If you listen to this uh, passage, the whole of Isaiah 53. Uh, and just see how it unfolds. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. It's a picture of the incarnation. Jesus born into a poor family, 
you know, growing up a normal life. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, we held him in low esteem. It's the description of Jesus' trial, his rejection by the people. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. It's a description of the crucifixion, isn't it? It's the crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. Imagine you're Philip. And there's a guy reading this out and he's saying, I don't know what this means. And you're Philip and all this stuff is fresh in you. Not just as a message you've received, but probably things that you have seen with your own eyes. It would just burst forth out of you, wouldn't it? It's like, I know who this is. I know who this is. I mean, it's incredible if you read, you know, the whole of Isaiah 53. It's just the fifth gospel. It's incredible. Incredible. So, for him, it's just so easy. Faith in Christ just brings this understanding of Scripture. And that's something that's important for us today, of course. Uh, in terms of our understanding of Scripture, we begin to see the Old Testament in the light of what Christ teaches us. We see that Jesus is the new Adam. We see the cross revealed as the tree of life. We see uh, Jesus as the true temple. We see him as a uh, uh, the, the true Noah who building uh, an ark to, to save people. We see uh, the Red Sea as foreshadowing baptism. We see uh, the glory of God revealed in the temple now come down uh, in the, the person of the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts. We see David killing the Goliath. I mean, it's a picture of Christ conquering death. You know, there's so many things we could talk about that the Old Testament is just opened up to us and it becomes not just a, it is a coherent story in and of itself, the history of Israel. But suddenly it's got all these layers of meaning which flow together like tributaries into a river that make it incredibly powerful. Powerful for us as Christians. Powerful in terms of witness when people encounter scripture for themselves. So there's there's a kind of minor point there that scripture becomes clear to us in the light of Christ. And I say minor point, it's a really big point, isn't it? But it's minor in, in the light of the bigger thing, which is, when we, when Christ comes into our lives and we, the Holy Spirit's poured into our hearts and we come into a relationship with God, it's not just the Bible that becomes clear to us, but God pours his wisdom into our hearts in ways that enable us to actually understand everything around us clearly. Everything around us clearly. So C.S. Lewis says quite famously, one of my famous and most repeated quotes of his, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I think that's really profoundly true. You know, Christ's life and his death and his resurrection enables us to understand the world around us. The world is created good, but flawed because it's fallen. You know, the fundamental friction between the church and uh, what we might just label the progressive uh politics that are around us, the progressive agenda that's around us, is is that understanding. People who aren't Christians believe don't understand that the world is fallen and therefore anything that where we we say we can just endlessly improve things, it's just going to get better and better, just doesn't take into account the brokenness of the world around us. It, it, the message of Christ gives us understanding of ourselves. It enables us to understand we too, not just the world around us, we too are fallen. I am fundamentally broken. I cannot do the things that I was created to do without God's healing power in my life. And I don't just mean healing to walk around. I mean healing my mind and my heart, my imagination. I, I fundamentally need him, not just to do supernatural things, but just to do natural things. I need him. 
Isn't that true? And, and the knowledge of that is a great comfort to me because I fail quite naturally all the time. But I know that I need God. And it's not just the case of me waking up one day and pulling my socks up and trying harder, but actually I'm utterly dependent on him from, from my health, let alone uh, for, for the health of my soul, let alone any kind of supernatural thing that he calls me to. It gives me profound inner understanding. And you see that all throughout Christian history. We, we have an idea of what we're supposed to be, not just as God created us, but as redeemed people with his love poured into our hearts. We begin to see what God's ultimate plan is for the human race and the created order. A world, a universe full of his love, his beauty and goodness. And we begin to be able to aspire and reach towards that like flowers turning towards the sun. We begin to have life in us. You know, Christians who have the Holy Spirit as a, as a whole, as a group, we should be experts in what it means to be human. Don't you think? Despite our brokenness and our weakness, despite how much help we need, we have this incredible advantage. We have the light of Christ shone into our hearts to reveal to us things that other people just, just cannot understand. And we have God's light to understand the providence of God working all around us in, in history and in our own lives as well. Because we know that God is love and we know that he's all powerful. That gives us a key to interpret the events of our own life and of history to understand where things are headed. Doesn't it? Think of this eunuch. With Christ coming into his life, his guy's baptized. It's not only scripture that he suddenly understands, but he suddenly begins to see God's hand at work in his life. His whole life, up until that moment, ordered meticulously to bring him into contact on that desert road with Philip so that he could come to know the Messiah. And if, if the legend is correct, if the, his, if the tradition of the church is correct, this guy went on to found the church in Ethiopia. So all the stuff that had happened to him up until that point, which was probably a bit of a mystery, quite frankly, I would be a bit mystified if I'd been made a eunuch at some point in my life and I'd be wondering what God's purpose in all that was. And if I'd become a convert to Judaism only to find out that I wasn't really allowed to, to, to be part of you know, wouldn't you be wondering? Wouldn't you be asking some questions about that? All that stuff suddenly, which is so puzzling, a knot of mystery, just like the passage he's reading, suddenly becomes clear. God has been at work. He has brought me to this point. To pour his grace and love in. You know, one day, it's brilliant. Heidi showed us that picture, that inside out piece of, I don't know, what do you call that? Someone help me out. Embroidery? Sorry. Embroidery. And we see part of the picture. We see the back with all the knots and the ties. And it doesn't make sense to us. But there will be a day when we shall see everything. There will be an answer for everything in history, but in your life too. There will not be a moment where you will go, that was meaningless, or that was a waste of time, or God's purposes were frustrated in some way in your life. Everything will appear as wonderful and mysterious as the cross appears to us. The most terrible things we will see as the things God has used incredibly powerfully for his glory and to bless us. And so it's full understanding. And just an application, just a, a kind of, I think a prophetic one. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you are stumbling around in the dark. You feel like the things that are happening to you are like, you know, 
uh, you're banging into furniture and bruising your shins. Like the, the stuff that's happening in your life is causing you to be frustrated again and again. It feels like you're not making any progress. So maybe you're not a Christian at all. And you're thinking, where am I going with life? Jesus can turn the lights on. He can make it like hide and seek in the dark with a light switch flicked. Suddenly everything will become clear. But for, for those of you who are Christians, you feel like you're stumbling around. You feel like there's no purpose. That amazing moment, that grand reveal when the, that thing is turned inside out and we see the picture, that isn't something we just have to wait for. For the whole picture, yes. But by the Holy Spirit, God is able to bring an understanding of what he's doing in your life into now. He's able to do that. To get rid of the puzzle. <laughs> Flick the light switch. And when he does that, we see, you know, we think we're in this cramped place. We think we're surrounded by traps and difficulties and dangers and toils and snares. And when the light comes on, we see we're in Christ's palace, his holy place, surrounded by his treasure, filled with his presence, full of his riches. The Holy Spirit is is able to do that. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you're in that place of being confused by the stuff that's happening to you or to people you know and love, to ask God that the Holy Spirit would do something like he did with this Ethiopian eunuch, to bring a Philip, someone who can speak at understanding, or to speak by his Spirit to you and to reveal to you what is his purpose in this time and place in your life. God is trying to give himself glory through what's happening to you. He is trying to bless you through what is happening to you. He is deepening your ability to enjoy him through what is happening to you right now. You may be stumbling over the words and thinking this is really, really, really hard to understand, but the Holy Spirit can flick the switch and reveal those things to you. I want to urge you to ask him to do that this morning, if that's you. So, a fullness of understanding. Secondly, an unreserved welcome. Another silly story about me and my family. Sorry, (laughs) three in one talk. That's against the rules. Um, A few months ago, we went to the cinema and we got one of those special deals where you go at a weekend and it's like £10 for the whole family or something. So we sat in our chairs and about 20 minutes after the film started, a lady walked in with about eight other people, walked straight up to the row we're sitting at and was like, you're in our seats. I booked this whole row. You're in our seats. And I did the Christian thing, of course. I said, go away. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say go away, but I said, no, we've got tickets. I showed her a ticket. You know, you have to go and speak to the usher because we're not moving. Because 20 minutes after the film started, I'm justifying myself. I was mean. But, um, and, um, so she went away and got the usher and the usher came back and she looked at her tickets. She looked at my tickets and she's like, I ju- she was just really puzzled, wasn't she? She was just like, I don't know what's going on. Like, uh, you've both got the same tickets for the same row. So I was like, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, then a sudden thought entered my mind. Maybe, maybe it was the Lord prompting me to look at the date on my ticket. And I bought a ticket for the next day. And then none of the, the ticket attendant, none of the ushers, no one had spotted that at all. And so I was sitting in the wrong seat at the wrong time. And so for the rest of the film, uh, so I moved. I didn't really tell anyone. 
because I didn't want to be too embarrassed. But I just said, oh, we'll move. You guys sit here. And uh, <laughs> I, t- I told the usher what happened. And she said, oh, you can stay. Just sit in a different row. And for the rest of the film, we moved. But it was quite disruptive. And you're kind of sitting there thinking, what if someone else turns up with a ticket for this row? You know, you're never quite at home and never quite re- relaxed. I'm sure the kids didn't notice. But we, uh, we thought we had reserved seats and we didn't. So second point is this, an unreserved welcome. That feeling of uh, we're not meant to be here or being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Being welcome but not really welcome was, as I've said before, for the eunuch, an everyday experience. He could kind of become a Jew, but by virtue of his eunuchicity, or whatever you call it, (laughs) he could never really be part of things. And actually, you know, he was limited geographically as well. He could probably go to Jerusalem once a year when the Candace gave her him his uh, annual holiday or something. So we've got this interesting situation. His dedication, his determination to be part of things was quite remarkable. And yet he was excluded. And then he comes across this message. As uh, Philip unfolds the gospel to him and shows him from all these places in scripture. Now there is no reservation <laughs> required. There is, there's no in or out. There's no kind of in or kind of out. If you become a Christian, if you get baptized and put your faith in Christ, you will be completely blessed. Isn't that amazing? You will be fully part of the people of God. No wonder he was like, here's water, let's get baptized now. He probably thought this was like a limited time deal, like a Amazon Black Friday or whatever they call it. You know, He probably thought this was, you know, how could this be true? For so long I've been on the outside and you're telling me I can be fully part of God's people. It's an incredible thing, really. So no wonder he wanted to get baptized quickly. And, you know, my... The three points I'm making today kind of overlap, and I want to use this point about uh, an unreserved welcome to address a slightly less personal issue, but one I think is pretty important for us. An issue that many churches are wrestling with at the moment is precisely this, really. Who can be a Christian? Who's in and who's out? And this passage has become a kind of go-to for churches preaching a message of what's begun to be termed radical inclusivity. Radical inclusivity. And that radical inclusivity is the idea that the church shouldn't require repentance from people before they are included fully in the life of the church. Especially in areas of personal identity where there is a debate over whether there's anything to repent of at all. So with regard to, for example, uh, gay marriage, homosexual behavior, transgender identity and so on. The idea is that we should extend a full welcome to people who live those lifestyles before, uh, and just extend a full welcome, before asking or even approaching the subject of whether there's anything that needs to be changed. They should be welcomed fully into the church. And this passage is a kind of a, a, a go-to passage for that. So um, with regard to transgender behavior, for example, uh, one Christian teacher says in this country, one famous guy says, um, we shouldn't speak of transgender behavior as sinful, nor teach that God can or would change people who experience gender dysphoria. Uh, we should be like Philip in this passage, who baptizes an Ethiopian eunuch, even though Jewish theology would not have deemed him worthy of it due to his status as a foreigner and a eunuch. And he goes on to say, I'm convinced that the standard we're called to advocate beyond all others is that of grace, of God's radical inclusion, as most clearly demonstrated through Christ. Put simply, our task is to be the indisputable proof that God is love. Here's a well-known American on the same passage. When the Spirit guided Philip to that road in the desert, I like to think she guided him to his own conversion. Listen, though, I want 
you to, I'm, I'm not just saying this to dismiss these arguments. As he approached the chariot, he may have been thinking, okay, I'll just beat him with a scripture stick until he becomes what I'm comfortable with. But when Philip joined this person who sought to worship God despite his exclusion from the tent, maybe it was Philip himself who was converted to the faith. Perhaps Philip, in his encounter with this gender-transgressive foreigner, learned what seeking the Lord looks like. Radical inclusivity, message of love. There's some things to like there. and some things that we should rightly be challenged about. I, I do believe God's grace is sta- staggeringly radical. Don't you? I believe that when I get to heaven, his grace is so wide that I'll be weeping in repentance at the attitude I've had to people that I thought were beyond God's grace and the opportunities that I missed to share the gospel with them and to show God's grace to them. I believe that, that he is far more, far, far, far more gracious than me. And yet here's the problem with the idea of radical inclusivity that's behind those statements. The whole notion of inclusivity implies some sort of boundary. (laughs) To be inclusive, you have to have something to include people in. (laughs) To welcome people into a tent, you need a tent. To be hospitable, you need somewhere you call your own to invite people into. And for the Christian faith, what is that boundary? For the two people uh, I've mentioned above, the boundary is simply the name Christian. Who gets to call themselves a Christian? The belief that, that God loves me through Christ... It just, he just loves me as I am, and that's it. Who gets to go to heaven? That's the, that's the idea. But that's just a terribly watered-down version of the gospel. Partly because it completely fails to give a boundary. It fails to define what it means that God loves me. What does it mean that God loves me? Well, for, for 20 centuries, the, the definition of God loves me, the boundary has been belief in the Lordship of Christ and the salvation that comes through it. That's what's symbolized in baptism, that I bow the knee to Christ and I accept my need to be saved. In what manner? That he will forgive my sins and he will give me eternal life. Yes, those things. But the consequence of that is not separated from my bodily life. But actually, the consequence of God's salvation to me is that he's going to heal and glorify my nature. My physicality culminating in the resurrection of my body. That is the statement of our faith, is it not? I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Culminating in a resurrected body that will exist in a new heaven and a new earth. That's what it means that God loves us. Not that he approves of us, but like a ruined temple, he will rebuild that temple and put everything back where it should be. And then, having restored it, he will fill it with his glorious presence. That's the basis. That's what it means that God loves us. He will restore us and glorify us. And that's the basis of Christian morality. One of the, the things that God is doing is restoring the created order in us. And that means we have to to be welcomed in, we have to abandon the misuse of creation. We have to at least be open to him changing us. We can't reserve a part of our lives where we willfully transgress the created order. And so Paul says we can no longer steal, for stealing is against the created order. We can no longer be drunkards because being a drunkard goes against God's cre- the, the dignity of the creator that God's put in us. We can no longer be sexually immoral, but rather we have to be committed to monogamy. We can no longer mess around with gender or misuse our bodies in homosexual behavior because that's part of the 
distorted and fallen created order. So we can't become a Christian if we say, at our baptism, I repent of my sins except for burglary. Because that's part of who I am. We can't reserve some part of us and say, God can't have that. Now here's the critical question. I hope you're, you're following me. I know this is a little, it's, it's not meant to be abstract. I think it's a pressing issue. But it, and it's worth us having our, uh, getting our heads around it. Here's the critical question. Do, to be a Christian, do I have to be okay first? Does the alcoholic have to be cured of alcoholism before they become a Christian? No. They have to believe that God wants them to be free of it and is able to be able to free them from it, but do they have to be cured of it before? No. Do those who experience same-sex attraction have to overcome that before they become a Christian? No. But do they have to accept that God wants to redeem them, mind, body, and soul? Yes. Before you get baptized, you have to be confident that you will never, ever, ever sin again? <laughs> no. That you'll never, ever be tempted or struggle in any of the ways you have in the past again? No. We would all be excluded on that basis, wouldn't we? Nobody would be holy enough. enough. We just have to be open to God's purposes in our lives and believe that he is able to do those things. There's a a verse missing, which included in newer manuscripts, verse 37, it might be in your Bible if you've got it. Philip asked the eunuch, do you believe in the Lord Jesus with all your heart? That's what you have to believe, that Jesus is able to save you and that he's your Lord. So we have this great picture in scripture of the church in Revelation as a as a city with walls. It has a boundary, guys. And if you're on the inside, you're a Christian, but it has gates that are always open. They're not defensive walls, but they are definitely walls. Now, I want this to be applicable to us, but the question I want us to ask in response to this is, what does mission look like? See, the question that those two authors are raising really is, what do we do? And part of the frustration, actually I sympathize with their purposes, is that the Christian church is really rubbish at reaching out to people who think that they're excluded from the gospel. We are really rubbish at it, guys. And, and so while I don't agree with their conclusions and I question the foundation of some of their questions, I share that frustration that says the church must do something to include people who think of themselves as automatically excluded from churches and Christian life. What does mission look like? What does it look like to be radically inclusive but in a Christ-like way? To those who are committed to ideas or lifestyles that are incompatible with the salvation Christ offers. It looks very much like this passage, folks. It looks like Philip being taken out of the security of the church and all that's happening and going to a desert place, a distant place, a far place, and meeting with a guy who was excluded by everyone else and spending time with him and opening God's word to him and loving him, getting into his chariot. We, It's not... It's not exactly inclusion that God wants from us. It's, it's something like hospitality, but a kind of hospitality that goes out and finds people where they are and speaks to people, even if it seems hopeless. You know, look, look at the life of Paul. Look at Paul's list of converts in 1 Corinthians. He, he talks about, you know, these people should not inherit the kingdom of God. Drunkards and adulterers and the sexually immoral and homosexuals, you will not, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And some of them 
That's what you were. What was Paul's missionary strategy when he came into a city? He would knock on every door, but he would go to every seedy den of vice, every brothel, every place where a good Jew would not go, and he would preach the gospel to people, confident that this message of repentance and grace was not just enough to get these people into heaven, but was enough to bring them into fellowship with Christ here and now. Confident they would listen and respond to the truth that Jesus Christ saves lives. Philip was brave, wasn't he? When you think of everything he faced, we have to be brave. It is hard, hard work. And the real issue is that there are people out there who believe that Christians hate them. There are people who think that they are excluded automatically. They will never come to church, guys. And the answer is not to change how we do church and to make our our services more attractive or to make our, our fellowship as Christians more inclusive. It is to go to those people and show them that God loves them in whatever way we can. Before they have any understanding of salvation, while they are stumbling over the word, before they have any comprehension of grace, we have to go and give them light about what Christ is like. We will probably need the Holy Spirit to tell us, go, won't we? And we'll probably need him to go before us to prepare the way and we'll need him to clear up after us and probably whisk us away (laughs) so that we don't mess up what he's already done. But it's possible. And folks, churches and Christians are already doing it. Wonderful testimonies of people saved because Christians loved them despite the fact that they were beyond all norms. (laughs) It's urgent, folks. That idea of radical inclusion is a failure to love. It's a hospital with no medicine. But there is a wave of broken people who wants this popular movement of progressive politics and Whatever it is that's happening in our society has gone over like a tidal wave. There'll be a wreckage left behind. And the people out there are not going to clear it up. It's going to be us. It's going to be us. We have to figure out what it looks like. There's a wave of broken people coming our way. We need to believe in the power of the gospel and the grace of Christ to save people no matter where they've come from no matter what their background is, no matter what their preconceptions are. Amen. Amen. Thirdly, and I'll try and be brief, an unrestricted blessing. We have something inside us that apparently ranks us compared to other people. Some automatic part of our brain that says, this person is better than me and this person I'm better than. And it's operative almost automatically. I'm pretty sure it's part of the fall. And that part of us basically wires us into how much kind of, how much goodness we can expect of life. So if you're successful and wealthy and attractive and rich, something inside of you tells you, you should probably expect more out of life than if you're none of those things. Uh, apparently it comes from lobsters, according to a guy called Jordan Peterson. But anyway, I don't have time to go into that. The truth is, even though I've not got time to illustrate that fully, we carry those expectations with us into the Christian life about how blessed we can be as Christians, how useful we can be to God, how much God is able to use us. We all have this innate sense of how blessed we are, 
how useful we are to God, how much we can know him. And that was certainly the, the eunuch's experience was that there was a definite limit to how useful he could be to God, how blessed he could be to God, how much he could glorify God through his life. Don't you think? Before he became a Christian. And our passage today shows that, um, Philip says that Philip showed the man, starting from this scripture, which implies he showed him more, all about Jesus Christ. It's hard to imagine that Philip would have left out just a few chapters down the road, Isaiah 56, which reads, part of it reads like this. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who hold fast to my covenant, to them I'll give within my temples and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Isn't that a wonderful promise? You see how that speaks directly to what this guy would have been experiencing on his way back from worshipping in Jerusalem. He was excluded. Now there is no limit to the blessing. He's welcomed into the temple, into the full life of God. There is no limit to his blessing. So it's not just that we'll not be ignorant anymore, that we'll have this full understanding. It's not just that we'll not feel unwelcome anymore. But if you become a Christian, there is no restriction on the blessing you can have in knowing God. The limitations of your natural state for the eunuch, your inability to have children, that's what the passage is speaking about, will not restrict the blessing God is able to bring into your life. You can be welcomed into the temple. You'll participate fully in this joy. You know, there's no longer the, the, the outside of the temple and then the, the, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women and the court of, the, of Israel and the court of the priests and the Holy of Holies. There is just the Holy of Holies where Jesus has gone and experienced his full fellowship with the Father. A full experience of the Father's love for him, return fully and overflowing in the fullness of the Holy Spirit to the world around. That's the, in the Holy of Holies, the Son of God experiences that and he welcomes us in. There is no restriction. That is the inheritance of every Christian. To be like the Son and experience fellowship with God like that. So what is this last point? God says to us, there's no hierarchy of limitations for you. You don't need to strive to demonstrate your worth or your wealth. You don't need to, to strive to prove yourself to me. You don't need to fear that anything will restrict you from enjoying me and glorifying me. So we carry these fears around us. You know, I fear, for me, maybe you like me, I fear my natural abilities, my personality exclude me somehow from some deep Christian joy. There's some aspect of the Christian life that I'm just not wired to experience. You ever feel like that? I fear that my genetics, sorry mum, or my upbringing, sorry mum, exclude me from some fullness of life that is described in the Bible, but I'll never experience because I'm somehow not good enough, somehow excluded, somehow not spiritual enough. I look around and I see other people and they're having amazing spiritual experiences and it's a wonderful fellowship and I think I'm just not like them, I'll never be like them. I'm not clever enough, or there's something I've done in the past, or something that's been done to me in the past, or something has wounded me so profoundly that I can never have the fullness of life that comes through Jesus. And the good news of Jesus Christ is, there is no limitation. He lifts up the lowly and seats them with kings. He's on the side of the poor and the oppressed to make them the center of his kingdom. Think of this man and the hopelessness of his history, and yet God used him. 
Think of this man and, and the horror, the pain, the difficulty of the life he'd lived, the shame that he felt, despite all his wealth, despite his status, despite his privilege. And yet his wounds, his history were no barrier to the grace of God. Likewise, the Apostle Paul says, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. In Christ I am blessed to all the fullness of Christ, and so are you. I share in all his inheritance, and so do you. Who I am and who you are is no limitation on who Christ is through you and through me. We are blessed fully. We have the same grace to bring forgiveness and peace and joy and healing from sin, to carry the gospel message as Philip or Peter or Paul or this eunuch. We have the same love of Christ poured into our hearts that these men and women had. We're made in the same image and we will be conformed to the same image. The same destiny that one day we will be like Christ. And in this life we can experience the same fullness of fellowship with God. No matter what you've done, where you've come from, what you are like. You can know God's love and love him and pour forth that love as fully as anyone else. Nothing anyone has done to you. Nothing you have done, nothing about who you are places a limit on your ability to glorify God and enjoy him. Because Christ has cleansed you. And united you to himself. And the Father has adopted you. And now you share in all the riches of the Son. God would speak those words of his promise to us this morning. To you and captivate you with this same fullness that the eunuch saw on that day as the word of God was opened up to him. That same excitement, that same rush of, really, can this be true for me? You simply have to follow Christ where he leads you. Put your trust in him and his grace and he will fulfill a potential, not your potential, not like in the natural sense, not in the LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram sense, not in your natural potential. He will fulfill in you the image of Christ. And you know, maybe you're here this morning and you carry something with you from your past. You constantly refer to it and you allow it to set limitations on how much you can serve God, how much you can know God, how much he can use you like the prodigal son and he's home and he's welcomed and the, the fatted calf has been slaughtered and the robe's around your, your neck but all you can talk about is the pigsty. God says it's time to stop identifying yourself by what you're not able to do because of what has happened in the past or who you are. God would ask you to bring that to him this morning. God wants to free anyone here this morning from a curse that says There are limits on God's love for you. There are limits on your usefulness or your ability to bless others or serve him. And just as God used a ceremonially unclean Ethiopian eunuch to pour forth the gospel into Ethiopia and accorded him pride of place, I might add, in chapter 8 of the book of Acts of his holy word, he can use you and bless you fully and be glorified in you. Do you believe it? Just as God used the death of his son to save you and the world, so that same power and grace, through those things, he can use you and bless you and be glorified in you without limits. Amen. Let's pray.